Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. And this is episode 110. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host. This week, we have a special extended chat with chef, author, restaurateur, and pioneer of fusion cooking, Peter Gordon. Editor Laura went to catch up with him to find all about his fascinating journey, from cooking in his childhood kitchen in New Zealand, via the famous Sugar Club, to his current restaurant in Marylebone, The Providores. He gives us his unique take on combining unusual ingredients, including why lemongrass is more acceptable than parmesan in a risotto, and tells us why Turkish eggs will never be off the menu at his restaurant. I'm here today with Peter Gordon, chef, restaurateur and writer. You'll probably best know him in the UK for his wonderful restaurant, The Providores and Tapa Room in Marlebone. But in the industry, he's often credited as being the godfather of fusion cuisine. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm going to give a bit of background about how I remember you. So my first introduction to you was, I think, around 20 years ago. This might be showing both of our ages here. Maybe, I think it was on Nigel Slater's show. Uh-huh. Um, I could be making this up. And I saw this exceptionally calm, curly-headed chef showing us how to make something really simple but packed with flavour. Um, it was like a sweet potato mash, I think. Oh, yeah, with, yeah, with miso and probably yeah, lots of miso, butter and rosemary. butter, yeah. um, all these wonderful flavours. I just remember my mouth watering and thinking, I'm ever so slightly bamboozled here because all of these ingredients shouldn't go together. And at that time in kind of food TV, you kind of learn about French cooking or mm-hmm. Spanish cooking or Italian cooking. And I hadn't seen anyone kind of blur the boundaries like that. So it's really exciting. Um, let's go back right to the start. How did you get into food? When did you start breaking rules? And uh, I want to know all about it. <laughs> Tell me about your upbringing, please. Oh, gosh. that's Well, I'm a New Zealander, and I've lived in um, Britain for... I came here in 89, so almost 30 years, I guess. Mm. Um and I, uh, my mum always loves to tell the story that when I was four years old, she came into the living room and I was sitting on the floor with the Women's Weekly magazine <laughs> cutting recipes out and putting them into yeah. a scrapbook. And so I guess four years old is when I began. And um, I remember cooking, as we all did in the family. We, in New Zealand, we have a cookbook called the Edmunds 
the Edmunds cookbook, and Edmunds is a brand, so it's okay. kind of like they make baking powder and custard powders and baking soda and stuff. And they, it's a, I think it's the most sold cookbook in New Zealand, and people they yeah, still right. do, they update it and they add new editions. And everyone who goes off to university or flatting, their parents always buy them that. Okay, nice. So um, my sisters and my stepbrothers and sisters and I, we all cooked and baked and made cakes and things. That's a kind of real New Zealand thing everyone does. Yeah. They probably don't now, but, you know, way back they did. 50 years ago we did. Yeah. And and I just loved cooking and um, and would do baking and stuff, help my father do barbecues and stuff. But when I was seven I had a really bad accident. I was cooking, um, helping my dad deep fry a whole lot of stuff and I went out to the kitchen as a seven-year-old and I was quite short. And I had an accident, fell off the stool and tipped the deep fryer on my head. So the right-hand side of my face has got a big skin graft and um, burns and things. Um, And the family thought, well, he's not going to cook anymore. But that didn't stop me. And my father last year um, phoned up and he said, look, Pete, we found a book in the garage. We've got this big old garage. So we're going through the cupboards and we found a cookbook that must be yours. So he sent it to me and it was when I was eight years old. And I've got that at home here in London. And it, which is really cute. It's really yeah. funny. And it loads of staples. Dad obviously just bought a stapler or something. So the <laughs> book weighs tons. But it's um, all these recipes that I cut out of magazines. And, and you know, it'll say on the bottom, the listener, the Women's Weekly, the Women's yeah. Day, whatever. And I just made this cookbook. And, um, yeah, so that was aged eight. When I was 15, Your I applied. First cookbook. First cookbook, <laughs> or cookbook number two, the one that survived. The, okay. the four-year-old one... My parents divorced when I was four, so who knows where it went. <laughs> but um, the uh, when I was 15, I applied to be an apprentice chef with Air New Zealand, okay. who's our national airline, and I didn't get the apprenticeship. And that's the first time I thought, oh, well, if I can't be a chef, what would I be? Um, so what I what I what happened then was I thought, well, because I had this plan that I'd go off and do this cooking thing. I'd be with Air New Zealand. They're a national airline. I could do food and travel. It'd be amazing. And instead, what I did was I. Um, went to university. I was quite young. I was 17 when I went to uni. Gosh. And I had decided that instead I'd become a winemaker for, for some bizarre reason because we didn't drink wine at home. My mother um, up in, in Auckland drank wine, but it was kind of cask moselle or mm. terrible Muller-Turgal, awful <laughs> wine. So I had this idea that winemaking would be a good thing. I, don't, I mean, it was really weird. A, a, a kid from Wanganui at the age of 17 deciding to be a winemaker. It's just not what anyone did. I like your ambition, though. <laughs> good ambition. And, and I don't know. And anyway, I went off to university and then I um, had a tutor who said, you know, if I was 18 then, he said, look, if you really want to become a winemaker, you need to move to Australia. And I went, oh, OK. And it was the year Charles and Diana, Princess um, Diana and Charles got married. And they were getting married in August. I was at uni, and I thought, well, actually, if I leave at that in, uh, I think it must have been April or May, May, I'll work at my father's workshop. He's a little engineering business. I'll work for him, earn some money. I'll go to Australia. I'll, I'll get a job in a um, mine as a chef. I thought I could work in a staff canteen. Moved to Aussie, um, didn't really have any money. Uh, got a job in a restaurant as a waiter. I didn't realise at the time it was one of the most famous restaurants in Australia. It was called Mietta's. She was an Italian woman, but her head chef was Chinese, and it was um, he. The food was amazingly Italian. I mean, it was the first time I'd seen an espresso. Uh, I didn't understand how that worked. Stuff was the first time I'd seen an avocado. First time I'd seen corn chip. First time I actually ate olive oil, and I was looking at all these chefs and thought. 
Well, I don't want to go and work in a mine canteen <laughs> and become a winemaker. Um, I want to become a chef. So I asked Mieta, who was sort of the doyen of Melbourne cooking at the time, I said, look, I'm really sorry, Mrs O'Donnell, but would you, I don't want to be a waiter. Would you give me a job as a chef? And she said, you've wasted my time. I'm sacking you. At the end of the shift, go home. I never want to see you again. So that was a bit Brutal. traumatic as an 18-year-old. <laughs> and uh, But then a, a cousin had a friend who worked in a restaurant and they were looking for an apprentice chef and I began my apprenticeship aged 18 and never looked back. Amazing. So it was, it was perfect timing. Really perfect. And you kind of, you didn't slow down from there either, did you? The, no. <laughs> you, you carried on really quickly and was it within four years you, you were at the Sugar Club, is that right? Well, no. Um, so I, the apprenticeship in Melbourne was four years. I went through William Anglis College yeah. and one of my classmates was John Tarode of MasterChef. Oh, yeah. So yeah. We, were, we were at college together. And I'd, so I did my four-year apprenticeship and then... Um, it was the cousin that knew the person who which is how I got the job. She said, look, why don't we go and meet in India? We'll go to Rajasthan. And I said, great. So I gave my boss, I think, nine months' notice. And I said, look, at the end of the year, I'm going to go travelling. Um, and I hadn't really travelled. I'd done New Zealand and Australia. That's all I'd done. And I ended up flying with a one-way ticket to um, Bali. I didn't realise that Bali was in Indonesia. <laughs> I didn't, I mean, honestly, I look back, I don't think I was stupid, but I, there were things I just we didn't, all learn, Peter. didn't know about. <laughs> but I thought, why do I need an Indonesian visa for Bali? Surely <laughs> it's a country. And I flew to Bali and uh, on day one and two, I felt I just didn't get it, but I... Ended up teaching myself Indonesian to a really basic level and travelled around for two months and then went through Malaysia and then through Thailand and Burma. Quick trip to Bangladesh, climbed the Himalaya and Nepal, went to India for three months. And and that period of going around those countries, it was just... It was brilliant. It was, it was just amazing. Because Melbourne was and still is a fantastic foodie city and I'd been to Thai restaurants, I'd been to yeah. Italian restaurants and things, but I'd... It was something about being in the countries of Southeast Asia and India and seeing people preparing the food that I thought, oh, my God, these flavours are so much better than I learned at college. And at college, I was always getting into trouble because I'd go to um, a Japanese restaurant and have fresh silken tofu. I remember it was my mm. first foodie moment, you know, when people say, what? Yeah. What? You know, and I remember going to Cooney's restaurant in, off Burke Street or off Collins Street um, near Melbourne Parliament and eating this silken tofu and it was a cube of tofu that you could wobble like oh. a really soft jelly and mm. it had shaved bonito and daikon on the top mm. and it was served with beautiful tamari wheat-free soy sauce and I remember scooping it out and thinking, oh my, this is, it was the most delicious thing. I mean, it's got very little flavour but it's the most delicious thing I can ever remember putting in my mouth. And, and then I'd go to school and college and I'd say to the tutors, oh, look, you know, can we do something with tofu or can we do Thai food or something? And, and the, the response then was um, because the tutors were uh, English, German and French and they said things like, which is unbelievable, they'd say the Japanese don't cook, they eat raw fish, <laughs> we don't do spices, coriander's awful, you know. So as an apprentice, I was discovering beautiful flavours on an apprentice wage, mm. finding tutors who just didn't get it and then at home cooking things. So I'd, I'd go to the Vietnamese restaurant and I'd go, oh, my God, this muk chum or this, you know, fermented fish is yummy and I'd go and buy a jar from the sort of Vietnamese shop and take it home and I'd have some feta and I'd probably have some 
you know, sumac and maybe some couscous, and I, and I just make food with no regard to tradition um, <laughs> and just think, what, you know, what could, I, what could I do with this? So that, in a way, is where the fusion had begun. Yeah. It, was, it was really just, I bought a lot, I still do, I buy far too many ingredients and then cook with them. And I'd cook it for my flatmates and I'd go, wow, this is good, that's not good, that's great. And so I, I was experimenting with ingredients from many cultures, mm. not thinking that it would one day become the cuisine that I do, but just thinking, wow, this is tasty or this is salty or mm. this is a taste of lemon, whether it be lemon verbena or lemon myrtle from Australia or lemongrass or, you know, preserved lemons. And, um, yeah, so when I finished my travels, I arrived in London, 1986, and I got a phone call to say my dad was pretty sick back home and could I go home? And I say, oh, I've got no money. Well, we know we've got a, another cousin. We have many cousins <laughs> You're in very New connected. <laughs> another cousin said, I've got these mates. They're opening a restaurant in Wellington in the capital of New Zealand. It's going to be called the Sugar Club. They don't know what they're doing with the food and they'll pay you to fly back and give you some consultancy, which I did. So I went back to New Zealand. Mm. We opened the Sugar Club in 1986 um, and for two and a half years, I just did whatever I wanted, mm. and that was brilliant. And that's that's New Zealand in those days. It was hard to find a lot of ingredients. Like we, I couldn't find goat's cheese, so we made it. I couldn't get right. sun-dried tomatoes that you know those old things. But mm. so we dried our own tomatoes. We made our own bread. We preserved and pickled and did all sorts of stuff. And it was quite. A, it was it was great. They uh, it was great that Ashley and Vivian gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted. Yeah. And I was. It was just like a kid in a toy shop. I was. It was so amazing. Well, it worked. Yeah, clearly. it worked. <laughs> um, and so, what made you come back to the UK and London and, and stick with us as well? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the plan had been because I'd lived in New Zealand and then Australia. The plan was, you know, I'll follow my ancestors because I'm Maori Scottish. I thought I'll move to I'll move to the UK, which is what I'd arrived here for. Yeah. But then went back into the Sugar Club. Um, and I thought, you know, I want to go and live in the UK. I really want to see what it's like. Mm. So in 89, I decided to come back. Um, Ash and Viv, who owned the restaurant, said, well, if you're leaving, we're leaving. So they sold. <laughs> and so we all moved back sort of bit by bit, all, all moved to the UK. Mm. And um, the plan was to open up a sugar club here. Okay. Uh, but we'd arrived in 1989, there was a sort of financial crisis. We were three New Zealanders with, I mean, we had no bank records. Yeah. We, you know, even when I arrived here and got a job at Launceston Place was my oh, first yeah. restaurant. Wow. I remember one of the chefs saying, oh, so if you um, if you say that you've been the head chef of this restaurant, how come when I asked you to clean the halibut, you didn't even know what it was? And I said, oh, because we don't have halibut in New Zealand? <laughs> it wasn't like, I'm stupid, it's yeah. just... Do you have terakihi here, or yeah. you know, kahawai? You know, it's just and and it, to me, it was really interesting. I thought I have, I felt like I had a good understanding that, that different cultures and mm. cuisines have different ingredients, and these chefs didn't. And, yeah. And so it was a. I did many many jobs. I worked at Launceston Place and Friths. Um, worked for a family down in Wiltshire, cooking for them on weekends, which mm. was fantastic. Um, did loads of stuff, and then. Eventually, I helped set up First Floor Kitchen with Margot Henderson, who's Fergus Henderson's yeah. wife. There was a Kiwi connection there. She's now got the Rochelle Canteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, kind of we I, I worked at a club called Green Street, a private members club. Okay. And I remember we it was only open for members. Um, and it was kind of, it was 
it was really enjoyable. It was hilarious. The you know customers were bonkers, <laughs> in a really nice way. It was sort of Lucy and Freud would buy whiskey at the end of the night, and Damien Hirst would have exhibitions with Jade Jagger. I mean, it was sure for, again yeah. from a kid from Wanganui. I was like, oh my god, this is quite fun. But then my sister Tracy. Um, developed leukemia in oh, Melbourne. Gosh. She had an organic supermarket in Melbourne. And and we were trying to see if was there anyone in the family with a bone marrow match and I was the perfect match. And so this it took a while to set up, but at the same time Ash and Viv had found another property um, on All Saints Road okay. that they wanted to do the sugar club at. And I said, well, look, just bear with me. I've got to, you know, I just don't know what I'm doing. It's another family crisis <laughs> yeah. had happened, health crisis. And so I went off to Melbourne um, for 10 weeks and we did the bone marrow transplant. And Tracy's alive and well. I mean, this well, this is 95. That's amazing So to it's hear. great. Good. It's really cool. Yeah. And um, and then I came back and I was like, oh, what am I doing? I just, I just don't know. I came back and a photographer friend asked me to be a home economist on a book for Keith Floyd. So the first book I ever worked on was The Best of Keith Floyd. <laughs> but that was an experience. Hilarious. That was good. <laughs> and um, and then I said, look, I will, you know, I'll work at the Sugar Club um, for a while, but I, I can't become your business partner because of my sister's crook. I need to move home. So I did, we did that. Trace was sort of on the mend. Um, and then after in 90, uh, so we opened in 95. We got loads of rave reviews. We um, remember Time Out voted us best modern British restaurant in the same week that Faye Ashler gave us Neros Award for best. Pacific Rim restaurant and I was thinking what 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 are we modern British we Pacific Rim and I was thinking in a very practical way that um I use olives and couscous and they don't come from the Pacific (laughs) and I felt modern British didn't really define me because I thought well I'm not really British and Mm. is it modern and then I'd read about a chap in um America called Norman Van Aken who's Chicago but was living in Florida and he was doing a style of food that he termed, he said it was a bit fusion, and it was sort of um, yucca, I think young, upperly mobile Cuban-Americans. Okay. Yucca. It was sort of yucca, um, and, and he said it was this fusion of... And I thought, fusion, that's a great word, let's call it... So we began calling it fusion. And um, and then at the end of 98, I said, look, I've, you know, I want to go and do something else, and the owners of the Sugar Club said, look, we're going to open in Soho, would you like to come and do that? It's a big restaurant, it's in the West End, and I thought, because I always say yes to everything. (laughs) So, okay, so I remember meeting with Steve Terry, who at that point um, was cooking at Coast, one of Oliver Payton's restaurants. I said, can I please meet with you? And we went and had lunch. I said, I don't how do you do this? How do you do a big restaurant? I'm really nervous, but and you're one of my favourite chefs. And I remember having a really nice lunch, and I got Mm. wisdom of him, who'd come through to the Gordon Ramsay School and stuff. And um, I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. I'll, I'll do this for a year. I'll, I'll work for you. So we moved um, the Sugar Club into Soho. Yeah. And the Sugar Club site is now Nopi, so it's Yotan's okay. restaurant. Yeah. Um, so did that for a year. And that was really interesting because Notting, I loved sort of being in All Saints Road, Notting Hill. It was like mm. a neighbourhood restaurant that people really loved. And Soho suddenly became this whole other thing, which I really enjoyed. But I did 12 months and then left did stuff on my own, had written two books by that point and also um, had f- uh, set up an event called Who's Cooking Dinner, which raises money for leukaemia. I've read about this. It sounds amazing. Have you read, uh, raised something like six million? Almost seven million that's, pounds. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. 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 And that's and, and that was that's probably the proudest thing I've done because I was able to use food 
um, and for people listening to this, we every it's usually the first Monday in March, sometimes okay. the second, but we get 20 chefs all work in one kitchen uh, and they each do their own different four-course menu with different matching wine. So it's basically 20 dinner parties, but you're, the people doing the dinner parties historically have been everyone from... Um, uh, Albert Roux and Gordon Ramsay and Jamie Oliver and Philip um, from the square, Howard from the Square and um, we've had Nobu and we've had isn't it terrible I can't remember anyone John Troyd <laughs> um, Fergus Henderson Morrow mm. um, Angela Hartnett um, Claire. Um, anyone who's anyone. Anyone who's anyone. So every year we have 20 chefs. We we change a few every year because the, we get the customers who've come to every dinner and the mm. likelihood, because we're about to have our 20th, the likelihood of um, a customer getting the same chef more than once, you know, you want people to have a new experience of each course, year. Yeah. But it, it's great. So so we did that and then, um, and then had a couple of years off before we opened the Providors. And a couple of years off meant doing a range of food for Marks and Spencers, writing another book, doing consultancy, flying around the world. Yeah, yeah. so quite quite <laughs> a few years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about your books as well. So the most recent republished was um, that was republished in May, and that mm-hmm. was Eating Well Every Day. How many have you written now in total? Uh, Eating Well Every Day is the ninth book, but okay. it's a reprint of book number six. Okay. Yeah. So, and and what I like about it is when I in New Zealand we at school we have something we used to have something called school certificate which you do when okay. you're sort of fifteen sixteen, and um, when I did that I because I've got a good maths brain but I I just didn't enjoy English and so I I got a fifty percent score almost failed English and um, so when I got asked to write my first cookbook which was the Sugar Club cookbook. Uh, I remember going to meet the publishers, and they said, "Well, okay, um, you know, we've tasted your food; it's really lovely, but you know, who would you like to write your book?" And I said, "Well, I'll write my book, <laughs> surely." And they said, "Well, no. I mean, chefs are chefs, and writers are writers, and um, there are very few chefs ever who have written their own cookbooks. You have, you'll have ghostwriter." And I said, "I'm not putting my name on a book while my grandmother's alive because if she knows that I, I said that, just feels wrong to me." Yeah. And they said, "Can you write?" And I said, "Of course, I can write." Which I couldn't, but and I and they went okay. Well, you've got you know three months. Get us a um, sort of uh, sample recipes, a bit of an introduction, you know, a few chapters and so on. I was like, sure, no problem. And I went home and I found out my friend Franny, and I said, Franny, I need to learn how to type because <laughs> I I didn't have a typewriter. I'd never used a computer, mm. and I went and bought myself um, a Mac, uh, which was really hard to buy in those days. Yeah, like it was almost impossible. You had to go to I went went to a back street near um, Edgware Road, some strange, it's almost like a dodgy <laughs> factory, you knock on the, to buy a Macintosh computer. Anyway. Interesting. And I, and, and I, and I went and saw my agent, Felicity, who was brilliant, and said, what, you know, what do I do? And she said, well, if you can't write, you're going to have to have a ghostwriter, but why don't you write something, let me have a look at it. And then she said, I think you've got a really good voice the way you write, so just write as you talk. And that, that to me was really empowering, the yeah. fact that... I could, and I enjoy it. Um, and then all the recipes we cook at home, they're, you know, they're always done in a um, domestic environment. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel that you know, when someone buys my book, they really get me 100%. And, um, yeah, but, God, it's a lot of work. It is. Now, you shoot all the recipes at, in your lovely home in East London as well, mm, don't you? Yeah. And you style them. And like you say, you test them all on your home kitchen so you know they're going to work yeah. for the reader as well. I think that's really important. yeah. It's, I th- yeah, I think it is. Feels honest, really. 
so we've spoken about a few of the places and the moments that kind of changed your career. Are there any other key people or places that kind of influenced the direction you've been in? Or um, I'd say I'm inquisitive by nature, mm. really. Uh, so... And I think most people are these days. You know, they, we talk to people about their holiday and food appears top of the list for a lot of... You know, you say, where have you been? I've been somewhere and, oh, my God, I had this amazing thing. Mm. So I think that it, it didn't always feel like that when you'd go on holiday, you'd meet people who really weren't into the food. But I think the all of us as a society, and obviously the people listening to your podcast, are people who love food or are interested Definitely with food. Yeah. <laughs> and So that's I think that's to be celebrated. But I guess... Um, I remember going to Japan. I've only been once, and I, it's on my must-go-back next year list every year. And and that was really interesting because I've used Japanese ingredients forever and ever and ever. And I went for the first time when I was perhaps 30, late 30s. Um, and it was it was like going to sort of a, a spiritual home or something. It was mm. just, oh, my God, all these ingredients that I've been using but used in a really beautiful way um, – was great. Turkey, I've had a long association with. I was involved in a couple of restaurants there for 17 years, two wow. restaurants. So I've been to Turkey about 50 times. Gosh. And, yeah, and I, the Turks are great. The food's great. Um, and and that was really interesting to have a really good look into a foreign culture mm. in quite a deep way. I, th- I think that, that's been had a huge influence insofar as the Turkish eggs are on the menu here at the Providors. <laughs> Let's talk about Turkish eggs as well, because Nigella Lawson said she loved your eggs so much, she included a recipe for them in her book at my table last year, and mm. they are just delicious. Let's talk about that dish in particular, because I think that's a real signature at the Providors, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, we, we've had, it's been interesting, it's been on the menu since day one mm. that we opened in August 17 years ago. And chilba, as they're known, or sometimes pronounced jilba, um, it, so it's, it's basically yogurt that you whip up with extra virgin olive oil and then you put some poached eggs on and then you douse it with um, what we do is we fry it, we cook butter until it goes slightly nut brown, we take it off the heat, add kuramizi beber, which is a type of chilli flake also known as Aleppo chilli, mm-hmm. and then extra virgin olive oil and then we drizzle that over the yogurt and eggs and it is... The mo- I mean, I never tire of it. It's <laughs> no, heavenly. I don't either. And I've had them quite a few times. <laughs> and it, and it is lovely because it's it was the first recipe in Nigella's book and the first recipe she demoed on her TV show, mm. and she's a mate, so that was very very kind of her. Um, but the first time I had it was on a boat. We uh, it was one of probably in the first couple of years maybe of going to. No, it'd be the first year that we went to Turkey and we went on mm. a gullet, one of those lovely wooden oh, yeah. um, boats down south and sort of along the, along the, what do you call it, the blue, oh, it's cool. It's like a, it's where a lot of artists used to go and it's this sort of south coast sort of going southeast from Bodrum and, and stuff towards Antalya. And it, anyway, we, we had these lovely eggs for breakfast one day cooked by the skipper and I thought, what, oh my God, what is this? And uh, and they say, oh, this is jilba. But what they do in Turkey is they put raw garlic, great raw garlic, into okay. the yogurt. Um, and it's lovely because you're in the sunshine and you're on the water and whatever. And so we put it on the menu here on our first day because we started doing breakfast here from day one. And we, um, by day three, had taken the yogurt, the garlic out of the yogurt because customers intense, were like, <laughs> what is this? So so it's kind of a, it's an authentic thing, tweaked slightly, Um and it's just, it's a, just a popular dish, and we mm. we used to have it on just for breakfast and brunch on the weekends, 
And then we were having people come in and there was a couple of years ago when we noticed a lot of Arabic people were coming to London sort of more regularly and it was almost becoming a pilgrimage site. Like a lot of Arabic people would come in and say, oh, you know, have you got those eggs? And we're like, what eggs? (laughs) And then we thought this is, you know, from a business point of view, we thought this is mental. So we put them on all day. So they're now on the whole time and we sell truckloads of them. And the the chefs in the kitchen, Polly, if you're listening to this, Polly, (laughs) one of our chefs says, please take the Turkish eggs off the menu. I poach hundreds of eggs a week. So... (laughs) I can understand the frustration, but it's really, if you haven't had it, it, it's really good. (laughs) It really, really is. Um, And what are your favourite things to cook and eat at home? I must admit, I I kind of love wintry, stewy things. Yeah. um, And I like soupy things. So I I think I'm a lover of chopping things up and cooking them for all together thing. Um, I love doing fish at home. Do I do... I suppose I do salads are always good because because it's a nice way to assemble yeah. things. Um, but uh, you probably wouldn't find me you probably wouldn't find me roasting, say, lamb loins at home. No. But I'd be doing a lamb leg, chunks of things. Food at home generally is quite quite casual. It's, nice. I'm, I'm all for a platter or something that goes on the table that people help themselves. You'd very rarely come home and find me plating things up individually because mm. I just think that's what we do in restaurants, really. Um, so simple stuff. I do a lot of toast. <laughs> Who doesn't love toast? What's your favourite toast topper then? Oh, um, hummus and this beautiful... Um, it's sort of a beautiful jam. There's one that I use quite a lot is the pink guava jam from Ooh. Awani from Bali. Wow. It's a, I, uh, um, there's a... Um, is it Jay Rouse down on Marlebone Lane? It's a, it's sort of an English. It's English, but it, I kind of think it feels a bit English Polish. And they have a billion different flavours of jam. If you've um, not I'm discovered, I'm going it. on the way back. And they, <laughs> I'm going to they, find this. and um, my business partner Michael, um, one day bought me a, a jar of tamarillo jam. And uh, in New Zealand, we have tamarillos, which we used to call tree tomatoes. Okay. And they, we have them here in smoothies. They look like a tomato with a stalk, um, and they're very sour. And they're they're delicious. We in New Zealand we stew them, and because we grow a lot of Andy fruit from the Andes in New Zealand, it, okay. the climate suits New yeah. Zealand. So we grow up on guavas, um, fijoas, which are a type of guava, and tamarillos. You know, Michael found a jar of tamarillo jam made by this Awani people in Bali who I'd never heard of, and bought it. And I was like, oh my god, what else do they make? And then I discovered their pink guava jam, which is is so good. Like, yeah. Anyway, okay. go and buy some. Sold. But, so I, I like that on toast um, with hummus. I, I like anything with hummus. Me too, really. me too. Uh, you're famous for your fusion. Are there any things that don't go together? Because you don't seem to be, you've kind of got this boundless, fearless cookery. Have you had any major cooking disasters when experimenting with all these amazing flavours? I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure there are things, but um, I think you soon realise that they don't work. Uh, I, I mean, I went to a restaurant once and had poached beef with kiwi fruit salsa or something and mm. I thought it's just disgusting I mean it even sounds disgusting <laughs> I mean I, yeah I think a lot of people like when we get chefs come into our kitchen new chefs you know we say what do you think of fusion food you know for many people they're like well I'm actually just want a job and this looks like quite nice and then but when you discuss with them and say you know what do you think fusion is and they go oh you know you just put a whole lot of stuff together and you're like no you don't you know but it's I think it's I suppose in many ways it's a very complicated the concept is simple, you know, mm. bring things from different things. But the um, the sort of 
production of it can be really tricky because it's it's not as though you can just shove everything with everything else. And and as I said earlier, you know, when I think of adding lemon to something, we years ago we've got a great chef friend, Gianni Vateroni, and and we're making a risotto here that I think had scallops or prawns in it. And um, and I said to Gianni, oh, you know, you need to put some lemongrass in the risotto. And Gianni was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I was like, <laughs> why aren't you going to do that? He said, well, it, risotto is Italian. We don't put lemongrass in risotto. And I said, but it's kind of a, it's a character of lemon, right? Mm. He said, no, no, no. He said, that that's I can't do that. I said, look, Johnny, the truth Sorry. is that rice is Asian and lemongrass is Asian. <laughs> and you Italians have ruined it by adding parmesan cheese, which, um, you know, they don't have. They don't do dairy in Asia, mm. so it's you Italians who have mucked it up, not not me. <laughs> and Johnny was like, "What?" Anyway, he he put the lemongrass in and realised that actually it was fine. It was nice. And 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 you know, so when I'm thinking of a lemony thing, um, there's that beautiful lemon myrtle that you, mm. it's like a, a wild tree that grows in Australia. There's lemon myrtle. There's lemon leaves. There's lemon grass. There's lemon verbena. There's so many lemony things that they don't have to. Like I just don't think it has to be so straightforward as you can only use things that grow within two kilometres of each other. No, it although, sounds, although those things always do work yeah. together. It sounds like you've almost got a set of rules, but they're just different rules to a cuisine. You're not bound by a cuisine. It might be that sour goes with, you know, salty goes with whatever, but you've mm. got a much wider book of ingredients to play with. Yeah. If that's a very bad analogy. Yeah. But, and, but, and years ago I went to, uh, I forget who he was, but he's a really famous Italian chef. He was at Westminster Kingsway College and he was giving a presentation and he said, um, he was a lovely man and uh, Antonio Carluccio was there and it was chefs and sort of interested foodies, mainly Italian. And he said, oh, you know, I did something and it, it caused more outrage than anything else. And we're all wondering, you know, what had he done? Mm. And he said, you know, I put um, fresh julienne ginger with a ravioli of, I think it was veal or fish or something. Mm. Uh, and I was like, I put my hand up and said, why was that an outrage? He said, I don't know. He said, in Italy, we celebrate innovation. We, you know, we find new metals to put in our Ferrari cars. We create some of the world's most beautiful clothes that are perhaps, uh, you know, they're... they're Uzbekistani theme this year from Dolce Gabbana mm. and next year it's Gucci doing, you know. He said, we love all that, we know our music and you know, everything. He said, but our food, we are so caught up in, his, in history. And he said, the thing is that adding the ginger to the ravioli made it so much better. But he, you know, there are, there are people hold these food rules to them. And I think the only rule really should be don't overcook it. Yeah cook it enough, um, <laughs> season it properly, and be a little bit whimsical. And, and it's not like I think every restaurant should do that because that's silly. And I like, um, mm. you know, I love going to, you know, a Kyoto restaurant and only eating Kyoto food or eating food just from Tuscany or whatever. I'm, mm. I'm all for everything. But I, but I think fusion really does have a place in cuisine. And I think a lot of um, innovation that you see when you go to restaurants like, I remember years ago having, I think it was Marco Pierre White at the Oak Room or something, and mm -hmm. he did foie gras with mango, and I thought, okay, that's fusion. Mm -hmm. And I read a review about it, you know, and people said, oh, my God, this modern interpretation of something. I thought, it's fusion. Yeah. Like, where, <laughs> since when did mangoes grow in the foie gras country, yeah. and since when were they doing foie gras in Thailand? You know, it's <laughs> just, it's, it's, so I think it exists, but people, some people just like to not appreciate it. Well, there's lots of reasons to appreciate it here. Um, now, t talking of different places that you've been to, you travel a lot. You've just come back from Greece, which you were telling me about before mm. we started recording. What was the best thing that you ate out there? 
Uh, we ate, they have a salad there called dacos, which okay. comes from Crete. And they, it's interesting that there's a whole world of bags of rusks that we don't have here. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, rusks were those really like dry crouton-y bread things yeah. that you'd kind of give babies to chew on. Yeah. Um, in Greece, it seems to be that rusks come in different shapes and sizes, looking either like a um, thick slices of baguette or round, almost bagels, and they sell them by the packets in supermarkets. And in um, the Four Seasons, which has nothing to do with the Four Seasons, okay. I think they spell it as one word, but there's this great <laughs> beach club just down the road, and um, they soak these brown wholemeal sort of rusks in cold water and then drain them, and then they put chopped peeled tomatoes and feta cheese on top and basil and mint mm. and drizzle it with loads of olive oil. That's really good. But the thing we probably the thing we had most were the um, red mullet just dusted in flour and deep fried. So we'd often at the house we had um, make salads and things and then just phone up and say, look, can we get a kilo of uh, red mullet off you? So that was really simple, like nothing, nothing fancy. And the lady we rent the house off always makes us a beautiful mushroom tart, and it's mushroom mm. and pecorino, thick, this sort of thick phyllo pastry that you get mm-hmm. in Greece and Italy. That's kind of, it's not the really thin, thin stuff. That's always good, yeah. Simple, simple, and that I mean, give me simple food in Greece because you know, <laughs> it's just all you need. It's great, listeners. You need to look at Peter's Instagram because I was drooling over everything. <laughs> um, I think it also we're nearly running out of time, but I think it'd be really great to talk quickly about some of the other fingers and other pies you've got because I only learnt this year that you were one of the co-founders of Crosstown mm. Bakery, mm-hmm. the the famous donuts, and you um, have done consultation on gourmet burger kitchen mm-hmm. as well. So yeah. tell me about those as well because you. <laughs> Just don't stop. You're no, constantly I doing like things. I like to be busy. Yeah. Um, yeah, in 2001, uh, Gourmet Burger Kitchen opened, uh, and that was there were three young New Zealanders, Adam, Brandon, and Greg, and they were they because we've always we've had coffee shops in in New Zealand forever. The flat white came from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. We've had gourmet burgers where um, you know you could get really funky burgers, and these three guys, these three young guys, approached me and said, "Look, you know, we need someone to help us with the food thing." Uh, would you be interested? And I was like, sure. So I became one of the sort of investors and founders. And and I remember taste doing a lot of the food testing for GBK, Call My Burger Kitchen, at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of went on to become a huge success, and, yeah. and we sold that. Um, and then Adam and Brandon uh, joined forces with Michael, my business partner here, and we opened Corpapa Restaurant in Covent Garden, which we ran for five years until we sold that. And... Um, which was lo- it was lovely working, you know, the, the four of us worked really well. Mm-hmm. And then Adam had this great idea. He had um, met up with a chap called JP, and they, between them, wanted to sort of set up a donut coffee business. And it was like, great, Adam, you always have a good idea. So, <laughs> so I came in as one of the founders of that. So the first donuts that we ever um, kind of filled and presented were done in my house that you've been to in yeah. London. And, and that became Crosstown Donuts. And that's gone on to be a huge success really successful and if really you successful. if you look on their website today i was looking at some of the flavors they're doing fusion yeah. flavors in their donuts right and i just think that's so cool it's, it's very yeah. cool and i remember when we started um i put forward some sort of um, flavor profile ideas and it was felt that it was a bit too racy and it's been interesting in the <laughs> sort of the five years of crosstown how 
how those flavours are no longer seen as racy. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting project. The landscape's definitely changing. I think people are so much more open to mixing flavours mm. and cuisines and textures and techniques and things now, which is really exciting for you and for us and for yeah. everyone involved in food. And Okay, so that that's everything you've been up to, I think. <laughs> <laughs> What's the future? What's going to be happening for the rest of 2018 and beyond? Uh, 2018, I'm a bit, I'll head back home. To New Ze- I go to New Zealand because I have two restaurants out there, the Sugar Club. Which is the top of the Sky Tower. It's fifty third floor of this tower, that's on the highest hill in Auckland, and you can see the Pacific Ocean to the east and the Tasman Sea to the uh, west. Which yeah. I have to say, it's like winning restaurant lotto. It's brilliant. Yeah. And I've got a little um, that's five years old, so I'm going back to do the fifth birthday for that. And I have a restaurant called Bayota, which is a Spanish tapas bar, and Bayota is Spanish for acorn. Okay. And we were the first people to import. Um, Hamon uh, de Bayota, the mm. sort of the beautiful Iberico um, Hamon. And it's the only tapas bar in New Zealand that has a 100% Spanish wine list. Wow. Um, so it's quite cool. And that's 12 years old this year. So I go back to New Zealand sort of four, five, six times a year to do menu changes and stuff. So I'll do that. I've got three more trips this year to New Zealand. Gosh. and I'll. But I will be in a couple of weeks at, in Fiji for my mother's 80th. So wow. I've just had two weeks in Greece. I'm about to go to Fiji for a week. I have quite a you know, a lucky life. But well when, earned, when I'm in the kitchen, it's just you head down and you're working really hard. Yeah. So I, I think I deserve it. Yeah, I think you definitely do. That just reminds me before we go... In the Providores, you have an all-New Zealand wine mm. list. Is that right? It's the largest in Europe. Tell us a bit about that, because we I don't know if any of the listeners went to the great event that we had with you in April and uh, got to try some of those lovely wines. But tell us a bit about them, because I just think that's great as well. Oh, uh, well, we when we opened the Providores 17 years ago, we... The plan was to be a hundred New Zealand, hundred percent New Zealand wineless, and then a winemaker friend said, "Look, you know that's really admirable," but he said, "I think it's nuts because they'd, and, and seventeen years ago you could get Cloudy Bay Sauvignon Blanc, you could get some reds, but there, were, there weren't a lot of wines here." Mm. And he said, "I think you're going to be better to um, to be able to say to customers who may not be familiar with New Zealand wines, look, try." Um, uh, Burgundy, mm-hmm. and then try New Zealand Pinot Noir and see what you can be. So w- when we opened, I think we were probably 40% or 30% New Zealand, 70% European. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, we kind of made it 50-50 and sort of 60-40 and 70-30, the other direction. And then we had a um, meeting one day and um, the managers and Mel, who was looking after our wine list, and, we, and Mel said, look, you know, we've only got seven or whatever it was foreign or non-New Zealand wines on the list. We hardly sell them. We haven't sold any for a couple of weeks. So we thought, well, let's just um, drink them. And <laughs> we went 100% New Zealand wine, and we've never looked back. We have one American wine on at the moment, okay. but that's because it's made by Angela, who used to be our bar manager. Oh, wow. So she's an American New Zealand woman. And we thought, well, how many of your staff get to make a wine? So we allow <laughs> her on. And then we found out last week that we, we whilst we have the, um, the largest New Zealand... The, we have the largest list of New Zealand-only uh, vineyards on, but there okay. there is a chap we've found out who has got more... Like we've got 120 wines. I think he's got 140, but he's got, say, 10 vintages of Felton Road and I 10 see. of this and 10, whereas we've got the most varieties of vineyards. So we've been usurped suddenly, <laughs> but that's okay. But it, we're just selling... And, and for us, we we view it almost as a patriotic duty, Michael mm. and I. We see it that... Um, 
you know, if we can showcase really good wines from New Zealand and be seen as a place where when we first started, we used to import a lot of wine ourselves, and, and, and um, vineyards in New Zealand that we knew would approach us and say, look, Peter and Michael, could we please, you know, get our wine on your list and then we can try and get a... So they found distributors for us. So we worked right. as a conduit for producers to get to market, which we're very proud of. And you should be. It's fantastic. So thank you so much, Peter. It's been so nice learning about your life, <laughs> learning about fusion cuisine. And um, if anybody's not inspired yet, you need to get down to the Providors and try this amazing food or buy your books as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd really love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can also pick up a copy of our brand new July issue right now, or you can go and download the app version. Bye for now, and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat. 